This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. To me, it's a decidedly human story with, you know, all of our vices and some of our virtues as a species. How does a community essentially rise up against one family and wipe them out? Why would they do that? I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. In the 1840s, an Irish family lived in constant turmoil after starting a feud with their entire town in Canada, and then much of the family was murdered. Author John Little tells us about the Black Donnelly tragedy. Tell me the patriarch and the matriarch of the family who brought the family from Ireland to Canada to begin with. James Donnelly and his wife, Johanna. Her birth name was Julie, but everyone called her Johanna. Mm -hmm. I mean, for one thing, to make the trip from Ireland to where they lived in Canada is about 3,000 miles on what used to be called coffin ships, where one in five people on the ship would die from typhus or various diseases. So if you could survive that ordeal, you were inordinately hearty or tough. And then once you plumped down in Quebec, which was the landing point, they then had to travel 500 miles to Ontario. And once they got to Ontario, they were deposited in the middle of swamp and hardwood trees and said, have at it. You know, there's your El Dorado. So they had to clear the land. I mean, stuff that we in our present day and age really can't appreciate. The amount of labor that went into working a farm or creating a farm out of nothing. And so they were tough, hardy people, you know, Irish immigrants. It's true that the father was sent away for manslaughter and did uh, seven years in the Kingston Penitentiary in Ontario. When he went away, she had to raise the children. And with no father in a Roman Catholic community, she knew that her kids were going to get ridiculed by you know their fellow parishioners, the other children, because their father had broken the Fifth Commandment. What happened with the manslaughter case? Who did he kill? Well, it, it was a bit of a feud with a fellow that came over from Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it festered once they got on Canadian soil. And it really came to a head as a result of a real estate deal. James Donnelly really coveted a piece of property. It was 100 acres. But while he was paying lease payments on it, the fellow that owned it decided 
you know, the market was just right to sell it. So he sold 50 acres out from under James, which pissed James off to no end. Mm-hmm. And then this other fellow decided he wanted some farmland very close to where the Donnelly farm was. And James Donnelly thought, well, I don't want this guy selling him the other 50 acres. So he got a line on a piece of property that he thought would be great for farming that this guy could buy. And he was going to have the fellow pay him for the property in which when he got the money, he then would have purchased the property and then also bought the other 50 acres with. But when this other fellow found out that Donnelly didn't own the property, he thought, okay, here he goes again. Donnelly's trying to take advantage of me. So he he ended up buying a different piece of property and Donnelly was squeezed out. So there was animus from the one farmer who believed that Donnelly had, uh, you know, was a criminal. Mm-hmm. And there was animus from Donnelly in that this fellow had broken his word that he was going to buy this property. Hmm. So they met at a logging bee, which was not uncommon back in the day where farmers would gather and help other farmers clear their land of stumps and roots and all of this. And there was a lot of drinking going on. And eventually the two of them retired and squared off, but they'd both been drinking pretty heavily. So none of the blows were particularly telling. However, this fellow picked up what was called a hand spike, which is like a a big staff that they use for prying logs. Mm -hmm. And Donnelly recognized that, okay, this is escalated. You know, now he's got a weapon. So he picked up one and cracked this guy in the head with it. But I guess the force was such he, he fractured his skull and the fellow died two days later. Wow. So James Donnelly was in a panic because, again, he has his children at home and a wife and a farm that needs his work. And now the police are after him, or such as the police were in those days, county constables. And so for a year, better part of a year, he eluded the authorities. And sometimes would return to the farm and put on a dress of Johanna's and work the fields so that people would think it was her working it. And out of the goodness of his neighbors who didn't want an Irish Catholic farmer prosecuted by a British Protestant legal system, which was at play in Ontario, they would cover for him. They'd warn him when the police were coming. And so he eluded them. But then a reward was put on his head. And he thought, you know what? I can do the time because it was self-defense, and my wife can get the reward money, which will help her with the farm. Oh, wow. So he turned himself in. The constables reneged on the reward money and initially sentenced him to death. But Johanna sent out a slew of petitions to get clemency for him, and it was reduced to a seven-year sentence. So she had to raise seven boys and the daughter on her own. And so she taught them and inculcated in them this belief that if anyone insults one of you, they've insulted all of us. So you have to stand up for each other. And so the the family priorities became family first, then the church, and then anybody else. And that was it. Whereas in the community, most of the immigrants that came over were sponsored by the Catholic Church in the case of the uh, Catholic immigrants. And so they felt, behold, the church was number one. You did what the church said. And the Donnellys were fine with that, but they also believed that Canada, like America, was a new land. You know, you didn't have to bend the knee to the old authorities. New land, new start. So that started to create a wedge between the Roman Catholic community in their area, in Middlesex County, and the Donnelly family. Hmm. But the Donnellys wouldn't take a backward step. They were always family first. If it wasn't in the family's interest, then, you know, don't bring it up in front of them. They weren't interested. Because the boys were all tough, According to all reports, you know, they were muscular and good dancers, good fighters. So they ended up being quite popular with the girls, which which annoyed the other uh, young farm boys in the area. And they're quite willing to back up any and everything they did with their fists. 
soon they became quite a formidable force to the point where nobody wanted to challenge them directly. They arrived in the 40s, is that right? 1840s. 1840s, yeah. So Johanna is in charge of seven boys and one girl, and James is in prison for seven years of hard labor for manslaughter. I guess she's got seven able-bodied boys who can sort of take over, is that right? Well, she was doing quite a bit of the farming because the boys were very young. Like, they were very young when their father went away. Mm -hmm. And the daughter was the youngest of all. She was only like a year. So she couldn't help very much at all. And the boys were, most of them were at best early teens, Mm -hmm. you know, when that happened. So she was an iron-willed person and very strong and very tough, smoked a pipe, and was not one to hold her tongue, you know, to suffer fools lightly at all. She didn't have time for that, you know, to be honest. And so the the boys were fiercely loyal to their mother, of course, and to the family unit. In time, the Donnelly Farm was one of the most successful in the area, and it was mainly due to the industry of the family. They were all hardworking. You know, most of the farmers in the area were hardworking, but the Donnellys exceptionally so, because their crop yield exceeded any of their neighbors, which further fanned the flames of jealousy, you know, in the area. When James returns from prison after seven years, what is that transition like for him? Is he welcomed back? I mean, oftentimes, if you have a spouse who's gone for a long period of time, things have moved on, life has moved on, there's a new system in place. It could be a little tumultuous. Does he just step right back into the role as the head of this farm? Or did you get a sense that there was any sort of tension between James and Johanna for any of this? He did settle in for the most part, but he was older. And, you know, again, I I think decades of farming and and hard living had taken their toll in terms of arthritis and things like that. So he knew he was going to need all of his boys' help on the farm. Unfortunately, for some of the older boys, they were of an age where they wanted to see more of the world than Middlesex County. At the time, it was common practice to go to the lumber camps in Michigan. The pay was good. You know, the state and the nearby uh, cities and towns had far more to offer in terms of entertainment and uh, good times than Ontario did. So some of the boys went away and and would log, but they'd always come back. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd come back and help with the farm. And the oldest son, James Jr., he was one who who didn't bat an eye when it came to violence. Just like his other brother, Bob or Robert, they felt that, uh, you know, overthinking a problem didn't usually result in a satisfying conclusion. When do the Donnellys and the community where they are stop tolerating each other? And when does the tension ramp up into a point where there is either a big confrontation or many small confrontations that just escalate? Which one is it, first of all? (laughs) It's a lot of small confrontations. Okay. And again, it, it harkens back to their individuality in the sense of not joining the group or the herd, standing off from them. Two of the brothers started a stagecoach line, and that put them at odds with another Irish fellow who was running a stagecoach line in town. But the Donnelly boys were you know, full of uh, you know, testosterone at that point, so they, they welcomed the challenge. And back in those days, if you could fight and you were a good fighter, you could get paid more to be a stagecoach driver because this sort of thing occurred frequently huh. over passengers or when you're, you know, taking your passengers down a country road, suddenly another stage would come and try and run you off the road. Mm-hmm. And so there was a bit of that going on. But the problem is that the main business head in Lucan were, there was two people, two brothers, the Stanley brothers, and they were the wealthiest people in Lucan and they wanted political power. And they also wanted the commerce that 
the railroad coming through Lucan would provide. And so anytime there was a disturbance in the streets of Lucan, that was viewed as bad for business. And with the Donnellys, if the rival stage had tried to run them off the road earlier in the day, when they got into town that night, they'd go looking for the guy. And usually there'd be a big brawl. And there were brawls. I mean, my God, there was some town strongman who some people believe was uh, brought in to try and rough up the Donnellys and back them off with their stage enterprise. And that backfired because it was like, you know, the Donnellys simply went after him. Uh, So there was this big brawl and lawsuits and counter lawsuits. And there were stages that were attacked and set on fire. There were barns that were burned down that held... Uh, the horses for the stages, as well as the stages. And this went back and forth. So the business interests in Lucan decided enough is enough. And this is a tight-knit community. Like, most people are related to one another. So if you slight one person, there's at least two other families that now don't like you. And the same thing happened. There was a Romeo and Juliet scenario with uh, William Donnelly, who was the second eldest son and a girl that uh, lived on the farm next door. They fell in love, and their parents didn't want their daughter to have anything to do with the Donnelly, so they forbid her seeing him. Both of them respected the parents' wishes, but they continued to correspond via letter. Eventually, she begged William to come and rescue her from her parents, who would not let her out of the house. And so he did. He showed up with a couple of buddies and four of his brothers to the father's house and came in looking for her. And the father had already moved her to some other relative's house in the community. You know, the father ended up getting cuffed in the air. There were shots fired. But this trickled down throughout the community to the different families that were not related to the Donnelly. So pretty soon they were the bad people. And then when a new parish priest came to town, the anti-Donnelly faction had his ear. So all he heard was nasty stuff about the Donnellys. And once he turned against the family, which he did, Anyone that disliked the Donnellys now had religious sanction for their cause. And that was the kiss of death for the family. Would the parish priest in Lucan have been the closest thing to government, mayor, leader? What did they represent? I mean, was this the top echelon of the person who really decides the trajectory of a town and who comes and who's accepted and how it grows and all of that? Well, you've got to remember that back in the 1800s, the church was everything. It was your social media. It was your newspapers. It was your theater. Mm -hmm. People went there to get married. They went there to be buried. There were bazaars. So any type of social activity usually went on through the church. The church was a big deal. They may not have held official political sanction in in the nearby towns, but they certainly influenced it. And that went both ways. The Protestant church has influenced it as well. When you have a parish priest speaking out against a family, it's it's like being you know banned from your country, exile. People weren't even allowed to give the Donnellys a ride home in their wagon from church. Again, once the parish priest came on board, suddenly people were seeing it more as a religious issue. The Donnelly somehow had disrespected the faith. They had disrespected the parish priest. But really, the Donnellys simply gave the middle finger to anyone who disrespected them, whether he was wearing a collar or he wasn't wearing a collar. Do you get a sense that James and Johanna, as the elders of this family, potentially having a little bit more common sense, are at any time alarmed as we're approaching the really big event that happens that affects the family? Are they at all alarmed by this, or are they sort of 100% behind whatever the boys are doing at the time? Johanna was certainly crushed by it. She was from Ireland. She was from a Catholic family. She raised her boys in the Catholic faith. So 
for the parish priest to be against them and to refuse meetings to discuss it crushed her. James Donnelly obviously was sympathetic to how his wife was feeling, but again, he was a guy that had done seven years in Kingston. And so you learn to be something of an individual there. And his attitude essentially was embodied when one morning he was woken up and told there were 40 armed farmers on his property going through his silos and everything else. And you would think if you woke up one morning and there's 40 people out in the backyard with clubs and guns and all that sort of stuff, you might get 911 on your phone. Mm-hmm. Back then, he walks out in the middle of them, you know, and demands to know what they're doing on his property. And, you know, they say, oh, we had a cow was stolen. We think you stole it. They kept uh, yelling and that. And eventually he just said, hey, listen, if you don't like us, you can kiss my ass. And that's what he said to 40 of them. Wow. So he had no fear of these people whatsoever. You know, he was taller and he wanted to know what it was. Like, you know, what's the issue in the community that everybody's here? And once he found out it was people trying to drum up charges against him, which had happened as a matter of course at that point, he lost his temper. Later that same day, Johanna heard one of the people in the mob say, we're going to go to William Donnelly's house. Mm. William was the second eldest son. and He had moved about three miles away at that point and was married. So she took off on a back route on a buckboard to warn William that this armed mob was descending on his house or would be. And so he went inside and loaded up a revolver and then stood outside and waited for this mob to show up, which it did. And as soon as they saw him with a revolver, it gave them pause. They began to kind of mill about and weren't sure how to proceed, which William was sort of the poet satirist in the family. And so he he found this immensely amusing and went back inside, put the gun on the table and took off from the shelf a violin and played a song called Bonnie Crossing the Alps, which was in reference, I believe, to Napoleon crossing the Alps or Hannibal crossing the Alps with his uh, elephants and army because these guys were too scared to cross the street. He was a witty guy and, you know, sort of that almost quintessential Irish ability to see irony in everything and, and humorous irony. What is the big event? Is it the big event where we have a lot of people who are dead? Or is there something major that happens before that? Because that happened in 1880. Well, there was there was a couple of things. One, the priest began to show up at the trials. Uh, these charges had been brought against the Donnellys, including multiple charges for the same infraction that had been dismissed. Their enemies would basically just take it to a different constable, recharge them, they'd have to go to court and spend money to defend themselves again. Hmm. But a fellow had moved back in town by the name of James Carroll. He was a big, tough railway worker who had been in the States and came back in an attempt to claim some land that his late father had left to his other siblings, but excluded him from the will. And when he came back, he was friends with a family that was related to the fellow that had been killed by James Donnelly. Hmm. So there was no love loss between his family and bloodline and the Donnellys. But he felt he was the guy to take care of the Donnellys. And so they created a posse of sorts called the uh, Vigilance Committee, which was originally created for the express purpose of sort of tamping out any uh, crime in the neighborhood. But one of the provisos was that if you signed your name on this list to support the Vigilance Committee, they would be allowed to search your property at any time, whether you were guilty or innocent. And William Donnelly, the eldest one, told his dad, don't sign this thing. He said, because what they'll do is they'll plant something on our property They'll come and then they'll blame you for doing it and you'll go right back to the penitentiary. 
So Donnelly's didn't sign it. And to the members of the vigilance committee who were not in the inner circle, which were really the connivers, Mm -hmm. it was more proof of the Donnelly's guilt. Why wouldn't you sign that if you have nothing to hide? This vigilance committee, there was an inner ring of them who were decidedly and virulently anti-Donnelly. And their job, or as, as they saw it, was one of two things, drive them out of the county or kill them. And that was basically what it was going to come down to. And so James Carroll became a constable, and he made it his business to do nothing but arrest Donnelly's, sometimes on charges going back to when they used to run the stagecoach line, which was, you know, six, seven years previously. A private detective was brought in from the city of Hamilton. This was a ruthless guy. His job was to spy and try and get dirt on the Donnelly's so that charges could be brought against them. And when that didn't happen, he kidnapped one of the Donnelly's buddies and hung him by the neck repeatedly seven times trying to get him to spill the beans on what the Donnelly's might have been up to. Wow. These were ruthless people. Their crimes far exceeded anything the Donnelly's did. But it was pretty clear they wanted the Donnelly's out. So James Carroll would be one of the big factors. He came in. Number two, the priest speaking out against the Donnellys sort of bowled up Carol and the others to think, okay, now not only are they bad people, they're bad Catholics. Third thing was a barn caught fire just down the road from where the Donnellys lived. And immediately this vigilance committee said, well, the Donnellys clearly had to do it. Hmm. The boys were in town. That's probably what happened. But all the boys were alibied because they were at a wedding on the night that the barn burned down. So They crossed out the boys' names on the warrant and wrote in the parents. So they arrested the parents and brought them to trial. And the judge said, well, there's no evidence they were even on the property. And they said, well, give us another week and we'll we'll get the evidence. Well, this went on for two or three court appearances. And at the last court appearance, James Donnelly had had enough. And he stood up and said, okay, we're happy to come to court yet again. But let it be understood that if you have no testimony or anything that's going to support those charges, we're coming back at you and we will sue you for malicious prosecution. That set the wheels in motion because the vigilance committee hadn't expected that they would be in the wrong and have legal liability. And none of them wanted to pay the Donnellys. Aside from James cracking someone's head open and killing him and going to prison for seven years for manslaughter, what do you think is the most egregious thing legally that the Donnellys did before this terrible thing happens in 1880? What is their biggest complaint? Aside from bad attitude, go to hell, all of you behavior, what is the biggest legal thing that they did wrong There is some evidence that Tom, the youngest, might have ruled a guy for money after drinking. What does that mean, beat someone? (laughs) Yeah, it just basically means this guy was flashing his money around a bar. And uh, when they left, I'm pretty sure that Tom and a couple of his buddies followed him. And one guy grabbed him, another guy hit him, and then they took his money and went on to the bar. There is that. So there's an assault. The Ryder wedding fiasco, which was uh, the Donnellys were friends with a family called the Riders. And the riders were having a wedding, and it was in the town of Lucan. And, of course, the reception was going to be in the hotels, which were the bars. And at that point, that 
private detective had attempted to arrest the Donnellys, but he didn't want to do it. He, he had three constables and he said, on this day, there's going to be a wedding. They're all going to be together. There's three of them. I want you to go in there and arrest the three of them. So the Donnellys didn't know anything about this. They're having a good time. You know, suddenly three Protestant constables walk into an Irish Catholic reception and announce in the name of the Queen, which of course didn't go over too well with the Irish, that they were there to arrest three Donnellys. William, it's actually interesting, William had walked away from his brother John when he got a drink or something. And at that point, the police officers came in and arrested John and, and dragged him out. And so William came back with his drink and you know, said, where'd John go? And they saw a couple of constables came and just dragged him out of the establishment. William went out there and said, hey, don't be letting that fella drag you around like that. So John snapped free from the constable and came back. And that precipitated a huge brawl in this tavern. And shots were fired. I mean, William Donnelly had a revolver in one hand, a shillelagh in the other. And he was hitting police officers and he was firing. The cops were firing. And it wasn't a Donnelly member, but it was one of their friends shot a police uh, constable and fled. And there was a huge manhunt. They brought out the local militia, which is the first and only time, I believe, in Ontario history that's happened. But they suddenly were like the James brothers, you know, and uh, everybody was looking for them. And they ended up, each of them, doing some time in penitentiary. William got out after only two weeks because he feigned illness, I believe, after consuming a bar of soap. And they thought, oh, for compassionate grounds, the poor lad's dying, you know, better let him go. <sighs> so he got out and that further inflamed the priest and the others who thought they'd finally got them put away. But that and the barn burning, their announcement that they were going to countersue, that marked them for death. I find it so interesting that this family can be both physically ruthless when needed to be and incredibly intellectual in kind of a way to threaten or enact revenge. You just don't see that very often, I think, where you have people straddling both worlds of kind of brawn and brains. Well, it's funny, you know, I mean, back in the day, the constables were as corrupt as anybody. It was sort of a pay-per-gig. So if I said to you, go and arrest this fellow and I'll give you a buck, that was money for you. But if, when you went to arrest him, he said, I'll give you two bucks not to arrest me. Well, there's no arrest mate. And that's how it went. So the Donnellys knew that the constables were basically the lackeys of the town politicians. And so they didn't really have much respect for them. One time there was a fellow who was a friend of the Donnellys who was on the run. They, there were some charges against him for something. And whatever reason, he kept getting protected by certain people in the community and the Donnellys as well. But then one day, William went into town, into Lucan, and everyone was there, the constables and the business people. And he announced he was getting married and he had his bride with him and she had her wedding dress on and the veil. And they were getting on the train and they were going to Michigan. They were going to have a honeymoon in Michigan. It was going to be great. And off they went. And the next day, William was spotted back in Lucan drinking in one of the taverns. A police constable went up to him and said, I thought you were having a honeymoon. I thought you were in Michigan. And he said, oh, no, you know me. I'm not the marrying kind. Didn't work out. And then the constable thought of it. He goes, that wasn't a bride at all. That was the guy you were smuggling nope. <laughs> that we were looking for. And you took him to Michigan. And William said, well, would I do such a thing? Come on. You know. <laughs> but that was the way they were. Yeah, they were tough. But they were also very compassionate to people that caused them no grief. They'd taken strangers. They were, you know, the first one, if someone's farm was in trouble, they'd be over to help out. And that's just the way they were. 
Well, I'll tell you, I've done a lot of stories on vigilante committees in the 1800s in the United States. And unfortunately, they don't seem to be very beneficial. It's just like whoever raises their hand and is willing to track people down with virtually no evidence. And it just has always felt really ragtag and often turns into, you know, a lynch mob more than anything else. So when you said vigilante committee, I thought, oh, boy. (laughs) They're in for it. It's a group of people who have sort of their own justice, their own brand of justice. Well, and that's exactly how it came down. And because the Donnellys didn't play ball, because they didn't get the hint, they took matters into their own hands. And again, they they waited. At the, at the time that the Vigilant Committee found their courage, if you care to call it that, the Donnellys had thinned out quite a bit. Two of the brothers had died. All but two had moved away from home. And the one brother was visiting William, who was three miles away. That left basically the mother and the father and their youngest son, Tom. You know, suddenly the vigilance committee felt brave. Five years earlier, they would have been up against seven of them. You know, now they were kind of scattered. Well, tell me what happens. What what night is this? What date is this? And how does it start? February 4th, 1880. Their house had been watched by committee members throughout the day of February 4th. The vigilance committee had met in an abandoned school where they hatched their plot. And the plan was that they would go there and they would kill them, essentially beat them to death, and then set fire to the house. That was important because that would show it was an act of God. There was a fireball that hit the Donnellys. It wasn't, you know, there'd be no evidence of foul play. That night, the Donnellys, unbeknownst to the vigilance committee, or rather throughout the day, they had picked up a young boy, about 12 years old, named Johnny O'Connor. He was going to watch their livestock for them the next day as the mother and father had to go back yet again to trial for this barn burning. So they brought him over to the house, and John Donnelly said, well, listen, I'm going to go over to William's place, because he has a a cutter, like a sleigh, uh, which we're going to need if we're all going to the trial tomorrow. So he left a little after 5 o'clock. Around 10 o'clock, a fellow knocked on the door who was a friend of the Donnelly's, and uh, a guy named Feely, last name Feely. And he came in and visited, but really he'd been sent there by the vigilance committee. And his job was to find out how many people were in the house, how close at hand weapons were, and to leave a door unlocked. And so he did. And he left. And then by around 11 o'clock or so, everybody settled in and went to bed. And in the house were Mr. and Mrs. Donnelly, Bridget Donnelly, who was uh, James Donnelly's niece, who had just come over from Tipperary about six, seven, eight months prior to that, Tom Donnelly their youngest son, and the strongest of the Donnelly brothers by all reports, and Johnny O'Connor. At about 12.30, Johnny O'Connor remembered waking up and seeing a candle in a holder in the doorway of the bedroom. And he recognized James Carroll, who was now a constable. And he got the old man out of bed and said, you know, we've got new charges to lay against you. James Donnelly was somewhat gobsmacked. He didn't know what to make of this. So he he went into the kitchen. And once he went in there, he saw that his son, Thomas, was handcuffed. So what Carol had done was he snuck into the house, handcuffed Tom Donnelly, who would have been the biggest problem for them, and then rounded up the father. At this point, Mrs. Donnelly, who had been sleeping in another bed with Bridget Donnelly, the niece, because Johnny O'Connor was sleeping with James Donnelly, went into the kitchen to light the stove. When James Donnelly came into the kitchen and saw Tom, he said, are you handcuffed, Tom? And Tom said, yeah, he thinks he's smart. He goes, you know, what are the charges this time? And James Carroll said, oh, we got plenty of time for that, boys. And they thought that's a really odd statement. Right now, there may only be two of the Donnelly men there, but you're in the lion's den right now. 
And this guy seemed so confident. And suddenly the door bursted open and in came 25 people armed with clubs and pitchforks and axes and just started wailing on the Donnelly family. James Donnelly fell first. He was the oldest. They beat Johanna to death right in between the kitchen and the main room. Bridget shrieked and fled up to the loft upstairs to try and get away. Johnny O'Connor dove under the bed. And Thomas Donnelly, with his handcuffs on, was trying to defend himself as best he could. He cracked this one vigilance member in the face, which knocked him down, and that created an opening. So he ran toward the front door, which went onto the main road, put his shoulder into it, almost knocked it off his hinges. But when he went outside, there was a group of vigilance committee members waiting for him out there. So they they essentially beat him to death out there, mm-hmm. dragged the body inside. Johnny O'Connor was still hiding under the bed, and he heard them say, where's the girl? And then a group went upstairs and then came down shortly after and said, she's fine, meaning that they'd killed her as well. Mm. And then they enacted phase two, which was the act of God component. They set fire to the place. So they poured coal oil on the bed under which Johnny was hiding. They put coal oil on Tom Donnelly's bed, which was just off the kitchen. So they had fires going on both sides of the house. And then they fled. Johnny O'Connor came out, you know, he stayed there as long as he could to make sure the coast was clear. And came out, could barely see because of the smoke and the fire, and was able to find his way to the kitchen and go outside in his bare feet. And this is February in Ontario, so it's cold. And ran to a neighbor's place. And, you know, they didn't believe the story that he was telling until they went back and then the whole house was engulfed. But in the meantime, the vigilance committee marched north toward William Donnelly's home because they wanted to get rid of all the Donnelly's in one fell swoop. And this is three miles away, right? Three miles away. And William Donnelly, they hated the most because he was the brains of the family, basically. Right. And he was a firm believer in the golden rule. You know, you do unto others. So Mm -hmm. if you were good to William, he was good to you. If you wanted to insult him in the newspaper, he would insult you in the newspaper. If you burned down his barn, your barn was getting burned down. That's the way he operated. He was very, very sharp. He was essentially their lawyer when they were charges brought against him in court. And he always got them on, even against better lettered lawyers. So they wanted him out of the picture. And so they went up to his place and they started to yell fire. And William had a prize stallion. He was in the horse trade. He was breeding the stallion in the back. And they said, oh, you know, the stallions heard fire, fire. And and so he he kind of woke up. And his brother John was in the house as well, who'd come up to get the cutter and decided to stay overnight. And John got up first and said, what's that racket? You know, William said, I don't know. And then John went into the kitchen, opened the door to find out who it was and was met with a shotgun blast and a, and a rifle shot, which lifted him off his feet and threw him back against the door jam. And then William and his wife basically hit the dirt. They didn't know what was going on. They suspected probably it was the vigilance committee. And when he looked out the window, he recognized three members of what were the vigilance committee. Hmm. He didn't know what had happened to his parents at this point. He just knew suddenly they were under attack. So when daylight broke, he went outside to check on his stallion, found it was okay. And, you know, his brother was dead at that point, John Donnelly. And then he asked a neighbor if he'd heard and seen anybody. And the neighbor didn't want any part of it, of course. Uh, but he said, I did see a glow south of here. And William suspected right away that was his parents' place. So he knew he wasn't up to going over to explore it. So he asked a friend to go over and see if his parents were okay. And if they were, to tell them that their son John had been killed. And he came back and said, I'm sorry, you know, your family's wiped out. Ugh. And that's when the trials began at that point. 
Tell me what happens with Johnny. He gets out. He's the only witness. Yeah. So what is the chain of events? Because you've got the entire town against them, but there has to be some sort of legal retribution, I'm assuming, for all of this. Well, I mean, William Donnelly knew who he saw. Mm-hmm. So he went and spoke to the constables and said, I saw A, B, and C. I know these guys. I know their voices, and I recognize them. Mm-hmm. But word also got out at this point that there was a witness to the murder at the farmhouse. You know, 12-year-old Johnny O'Connor been hiding under the bed. So now the vigilance committee is a little spooked because the act of God thing isn't going to wash now. This was homicide. So they wanted to know who he saw. They talked to their friends who were constables and said, you know, try and find out you know, what we're up against, basically. And they hired a pretty powerful team of attorneys to defend them. But having said that, within 48 hours, almost all of the members of the inner ring of the vigilance committee were arrested and they were in jail. The problem was, back then it was capital punishment. So if you found them guilty, you were impacting probably 20 families. Yeah. And 20 families that had relatives throughout the whole area. Mm -hmm. So you weren't just seeking justice. If you decided that they were guilty and should be killed, you were upsetting a community. You were upsetting the businesses in the community that depended on their coming to their businesses. You were upsetting the tithing that went to the church. You know, the whole enterprise was upset if these guys were found guilty. So consequently, there were plans immediately that this thing had to be stopped, this trial. And so they got a very good defense team. The priest spoke out in support of them in the local press, saying it had to be an outside group. Wow. None of my parishioners would do such a thing. Surprisingly, I guess all things considered, it ended in a hung jury. There was no convictions. But the premier of Ontario, a guy named Oliver Mowat, was very, very politically conscious. And he was concerned that, again, if the families of the people that killed the Donnellys were convicted, that was going to send ripples throughout the Roman Catholic community, which was the second biggest minority in Canada. And they voted as a block. You know, so he didn't want to risk alienating that vote. So he began to withdraw his support as both premier and as the attorney general of the province, reducing the amount of the reward that had been offered and, you know, not really speaking out against uh, the prisoners that much. And so he also ordered an immediate retrial, which didn't really give the prosecution the time it needed because the people that could have come forward and said, yes, I can tell you who was on the vigilance committee and I saw them do A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to speak out. They were scared. Yeah, of course. So the prosecution said, if we could have more time, we can work on these guys and maybe you know protect them or or you know encourage them to give us their testimony. Nevertheless, the trial proceeded. James Carroll, who was the primary person on trial, with the idea being that if he was convicted, then they would bring the others up and convict them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was acquitted. Ugh. That was the end of it. The government was not willing to put another nickel into this political tinderbox, and the Donnellys got no justice whatsoever. And again, Bob Donnelly, one of the younger brothers who survived, followed this jury and some of the vigilance committee members into a bar in the town in London where the trial was held, where they were all whooping it up and celebrating you know, how they'd, they'd won. And essentially, it was like something out of the Wild West. He walked into the bar and stood there alone and said, I'd like to buy all of you murderers a drink. And no one would make eye contact with him. No one wanted anything to do with him. He would have preferred to take matters into his own hands. But they deferred to William because William was the brains of the family. He said, go through the courts. Bob Donnelly saw James Carroll walking down the main street in Lucan a few months after that and just walked up and drifted him right in the mouth. 
uh, hoping that Carol would get up and, and start something, but Carol didn't want any part of it, you know, and that was kind of how it played out. But the town still wasn't finished with the Donnellys, interestingly enough. You'd think wiping out half their family would have been sufficient for whatever revenge they wanted or whatever their motive was. Mm. But that wasn't enough. The Stanley brothers conspired with uh, some of the Vigilance Committee members and tried to frame Bob Donnelly and William Donnelly for an arson, which they had nothing to do with. And eventually that got dismissed as well, and that was the end of it. So what is Act 3 for the Donnellys? You have, you know, this family coming from Ireland who have a hardscrabble life, part of which was just inherent to where they were, and the other part was self-imposed because of who they were. And then they go through this incredibly horrific ideal where the majority of them, you know, have been killed. And then there's no justice. What do people like Bob and William do when so much of their family is gone and it's clear that they're outnumbered and there's not much they're going to be able to do. Do they fade into the woodwork in the history of Canada at this point? Well, essentially, the family had been so thinned out at that point. Bob Donnelly never forgave any of the Vigilance Committee members. Neither did William, of course, but William had a wife and a child and he didn't want to raise them in that environment of hostility, clearly, that existed. So they moved to another town in Ontario, and for a time he was a constable, and then he became a hotelier. Still was breeding horses. Bob was a guy that whenever one of the vigilance committee members died, he would attend the funeral Hmm. and go up and spit on the casket in front of everybody. But he was also, again, typical Donnelly. He was a guy that could be as violent as, as he needed to be in any situation, and no compunction about it. But he was also a guy who, when he saw a crippled girl walking down the railway tracks, you know, went up to her and gave her all the money he had in his pocket and told her she could stay with his family anytime she wanted to. So there was that yin-yang component to the Donnelly family, you know, that there was there was certainly a dark side, but there was also this kind side. It's just too bad. I mean, to me, it's a very all-too-human story. There are no heroes and there are no villains. There's people that behave very badly and, and ruthlessly, But it's something that didn't need to go down like that. You know, I mean, really, the Donnellys hadn't committed any even felonies in five years prior to their death. They were minding their own business. They weren't bothering anybody. But that's the problem, wasn't it? Is that they refused to integrate into the community, like what the community wanted centered around the church. Yeah. Are there Donnellys in Canada? Did you search, I'm assuming? There are some relatives, yeah. There still are some relatives, but they're very distant relatives. And most of them, one that I know of comes from William a distant relative of Williams, and the rest are from Jenny Donnelly. She had a lot of kids. I think she had like 13 kids. And Jenny wasn't there at the time? Did I miss that? No, she was in an area called Glencoe. She'd been married and was, you know, raising her family some miles away from where this this occurred. Of the seven kids, you have Bob, you have William, and you have Jenny survive. And then I know you said two had died sort of what of natural causes or what 1800 causes is what I usually call, which is a myriad of things. Michael was killed in a knife fight. Okay, there you go. And James Donnelly Jr. died of pneumonia. Yeah, yeah. So there's no cabumpance at all for any of these vigilant committee members. Nothing bad ever happens to any of these people other than, like I said, 1800s bad things that often happened. Pretty much. Although, you know, William was kind of an interesting guy because uh, he came back to London, which is where the trials were, London, Ontario. And of course, he was recognized immediately by the press because this was the biggest story to ever hit Canada, you know, this mass murder. And so this reporter went up to him and 
you know, this is five years after the fact, and said, oh, are you still hoping there'll be justice? You know, William will come of this. He said, yeah, we still hope that. And he knew that a lot of the vigilance committee members as Roman Catholics were very superstitious. So he played to that. He said, isn't it funny how a lot of the people that were involved in the deaths of my family have all met mysterious ends themselves? And he listed off the top of his head about 12 people that had died under very odd circumstances. And, you know, sort of left it with that with uh, the reporters because so, he knew it was going to get published and he knew it was going to bother, you know, the survivors who were still in the area, who were always looking over their shoulder for Providence to strike. The curse of the Donnelly family massacre. Yeah, if only there was. It's a fascinating story. And it's funny, I uh, in researching it, the various brothers, I, I, I felt a tremendous sympathy for them, for what they endured. But... It also revealed something to me. When the family was killed, based on what I had been led to believe about these bloodthirsty Donnellys, I thought there would have been a rampage. Blood would have run in the streets. But there was none of that. Hmm. And the reason is that the Donnellys weren't murderers. That wasn't the way they did it. If you, you know, pushed on them, they'd push back. But they were not out to commit homicide. They were not a bloodthirsty family, such as they had been portrayed for over 100 years. And the reason being that the ones that told the tale were the relatives of the vigilance committee. So, of course, they had to justify the action. And the only way you can justify it is say, well, the Donnellys were, they were mad. You know, they're crazy. They were a threat to everybody. They're killing livestock. They were doing this, they were doing that. And that's the story that got passed down for generations, which is why they were called in those days the Black Donnellys, Black-souled, evil. That was unchecked for decades. I mean, I was fortunate that a lot of the newspapers from the time that covered the trials and Johnny O'Connor's testimony, as well as letters from their lawyers are preserved. And that was what really helped me get the facts of this story rather than just the legends of the story. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.